from MPB Think Radio. This is In Legal Terms, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Karen Brown. Sharita Branch is away today. Our guests are Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and Professor Han Sinha, Professor of Law and Director of the Clinical Externship Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today, we'll talk about the recent executive order issued by President Trump suspending immigration and visas for citizens from certain countries. We'll talk about the specifics of the ban, who it will affect, and in what ways. Is this a Muslim ban? How could the ban affect our relationship with other countries? If you want to join the conversation today, call us at 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Karen Brown. Sherita Brent is away today. Our guests today are Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and Professor Hans Sinha, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Clinical Externship Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today, we're talking about the recent executive order issued by President Trump suspending immigration and visas for citizens from certain countries. We'll talk about the specifics of the ban, who it will affect, and in what ways. Is this a Muslim ban? How could the ban affect our relationship with other countries? If you want to join the conversation, call us at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or email us, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon, and good morning, Professor Sinha. Good morning, Karen. How are you? It's good to work with you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk with you as well. Before we get to the ban, I do want to talk about a little bit that Donald Trump, President Trump, is expected to name the Supreme Court nominee this evening. How significant uh, is this person to the whole court? Well, you know, Karen, it's an important question because we've had eight eight justices to this point. Uh, The uh, vacancy left by Justice Scalia's death has not been filled. And so you you really do run the risk of a divided court literally being a 4-4 decision. And that's not a place we can can be in this country. We need decisions by the court. We need to have some finality. And so having this ninth person is essential. Now, Merrick Garland was uh, nominated uh, in Obama's last um, year as president. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are wondering why that uh, hearings weren't held for Merrick Gardner, but, uh, you know, at least at this point now, we should have a nominee. Uh, and the effect is, you know, it, it, it could change the uh, tenor of the court in terms of whether it's more conservative or, or uh, more moderate or whatever, you know, depending on the person that uh, Trump appoints. But remember that cases have to come to the Supreme Court. So it's not like uh, that person can get on the Supreme Court and start changing the law immediately. Uh, those things take time. Uh, between Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education was more than 50 years. So things move very slowly uh, at the Supreme Court level. Well, what about the confirmation process? How long can we expect that to take? Well, 
in a, in a functional Congress, it should happen pretty quickly. And I'll leave it at that. I, you know, it, it could you know, it could be a situation where uh, we're pretty divided right now. And that's unfortunate. And uh, so these hearings could could take some time. And uh, but we want we want at least uh, the process to move forward. And we want at least, you know, the, the real legitimate questions to be asked about any candidate or any nominee, uh, because we want to make sure the best people are on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I think there's a real uh, possibility that I mean, Mr. Trump or President Trump will get his uh, nominee confirmed, and there's a likelihood that he'll have one additional uh, uh, nominee for the Supreme Court in, in his term to four years. So this one person coming in may or may not make much difference in some of the, the hot-button issues, so to speak, but two people on the court would make a dif- difference uh, to a lot of things. Uh, but some of the issues are coming up eventually. Abortion rights will probably not change with one new uh, person to the court. Affirmative action issues will probably not change as much. Again, both those issues, Justice Kennedy is a swing vote and, and likely will not change his, his vote. There are some issues with the public sector unions and First Amendment issues in terms of uh, people who do not want a union having union fees go towards certain issues. That may be something they're going to look at. Environmental regulations, if it reaches the court, may be a shift based upon a new person coming in. Um, There's some other issues. Uh, Gay and transgender rights may or may not be affected, but probably not um, with one person to the court. But but we never know. It depends on who will be appointed, uh, who the nominee will be. And and, and like Professor Gershon said, that person will likely be confirmed at some point. Just I have one question before we move on to the uh, to the ban. Does the Supreme Court ever consider an issue, take on an issue, without it first having moved up from the lower courts? Karen, it, it can't uh, on its jurisdiction. I mean, there has to be a case in controversy in order for the Supreme Court to uh, to hear a case. Now, there, there are some things that are that do go directly to the Supreme Court, but they have to be cases in controversy. So if states are, are litigating against each other, those will go straight to the Supreme Court uh, but uh, without going to a lower court. But there, but there has to be a case. So the Supreme Court can't just say, hey, you know, we decided we're going to issue an opinion on something. There's nobody's <laughs> brought a case to us, but we think the law on X should be Y. They can't do that. All right, good. Let's move on to the ban now. Uh, let's start with the basics. What does this travel ban or this immigration ban, what does it mean exactly? What does it entail? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, and the, the name of the ban, executive order, uh, so it's not a law. It was an executive order issued by President Trump, uh, I think, two days ago. The name is Protecting a Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into United States. And it does certain things. Um, First, a preamble of purpose. Uh, it's interesting. It, it mentions that one of the reasons we need this is because uh, uh, President Bush's State Department in 2001 was unable to prevent visa uh, holders coming in who then committed 911 attacks, 911 attacks. So that's a, the preamble they put up uh, why it's needed. Uh, but it really does nine things. And a lot of these things have not been reported in the media. Some have. Um, first thing which we all know about is that there's an immediate suspension of visas for, na- for uh, people coming from uh, seven nations, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Sudan, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen. And that's for 90 days immediate suspension. There's an immediate suspension of the refugee admissions of uh, 420 days. And, um, and I think that's one a lot of people had some problems with because of an across-the-board ban on refugee admissions. The third thing it does... And this is somewhat um, 
unique. Uh, uh, there's language in the act that's saying the president determined that Syrian nationals as refugees is detrimental to the United States national interest, and he immediately suspended all Syrian national uh, refugees uh, applications. There's also um, the, the act requires the Secretary of State and Homeland Security give reports to the president, a 30-day, 60-day, 90-day, 120-day report, and make recommendations. There is a provision in there where there can be case-by-case exceptions, and in that language it specifically mentions the religious persecutions of minorities. Um, there's also additional matters that have not been reported in the media. One is that um, it's going to be the policy as per this executive order for the federal government to confer and consult with local jurisdictions in terms of placement of eventual refugee aliens in their localities, which I think was something that came up in the campaign quite a bit. There's going to be an increase of what's called biometric systems, meaning that when aliens come into the border, uh, there's, for example, scanning of their, their eyes to irises. So there's going to be an increase of that uh, system on, on our border controls. And two more things. Um, uh, there's also waiving the requirement for personal, uh, the exception to a personal interview for visa waivers, meaning when people across the world sought an American visa, uh, there were exceptions where they did not have to come in and have a personal interview. This executive action says, no, we're not going to permit that. Everyone's going to have to have a personal interview. And finally, in conjunction with that um, uh, mandate from the executive order, um, President Trump has also increased what's called the Consular Fellows Program, which is specifically, uh, according to executive order, designed to give more people in the, our various embassies and consulates across the world um, more people in that program so they can actually do the personal interviews. Gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt here just for a second. We have uh, someone waiting on the line who has a question about the Supreme Court, so we're going to go back to that for just a moment. Rick is calling in from Alabama. Go ahead, Rick. Yes, uh, i got a question about, uh, well, actually, Roe versus Wade in the Supreme Court. He's got one empty seat, and if he, he may get two more, especially if it's a two-term voting. I don't see where... You're going to be able to overturn in the Supreme Court Roe versus Wade because we got 40 years of rulings that have hinged upon Roe. I mean, it's hard to hard to move to court to do stare. I'm, I'm going to try to guess at it because I'm not really good at Latin. I think it's stares decisis, where they have to actually go back and look at the ruling and have some really motivation to change their mind upon Roe. I mean, they're going to look back and they're going to say, hey, wow, 40 years we've been relying upon this. And if they write any litigation, I mean uh, legislation, it's going to be all inconsistent with Roe. I don't, I don't. And how does that work? And uh, I'll take my uh, answer offline. Thanks, Rick. Rick, that's a great question. Actually, uh, if, I'm not doing this to correct you, but it's stare decisis. But that's all right. It doesn't really matter uh, because you're right. That, that just means to stand on the decision. Courts uh, should not. Uh, just change previous rulings because we need to be able to rely on what what the court has determined, uh, and um, and so yes, I mean there would have to be a case in controversy. The court would have to be convinced that either they were wrong in Roe versus Wade forty years ago, or things have changed dramatically. Maybe science is more uh, uh, you know um, precise. So I could see one thing happening uh, if there's a more conservative court, for example, instead of uh, a typical first trimester. 
uh, uh, leaving it to the the woman and, and her doctor, uh, maybe saying, "Well, we we've determined that you know you can uh, really say that life in the womb starts earlier than three months." I could see maybe some adjustment there as a possibility, but to completely overturn that would would mean. Uh, taking away a, a woman's right uh, to her, to seek medical advice from her doctor regarding her body, and I think a lot of people uh, would say that that would violate that that woman's rights, and that's what Roe really said too. All right, we're going to take our first break of the hour. If you'd like to give us a call, we're talking about President Trump's executive ban on travel and immigration from seven countries. The number to call is eight seven seven MPB ring. 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. I'm Karen Brown in for Sharita Brent. Today, our guests are Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and Professor Han Sinha, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Clinical Externship Program at the University of Mississippi. We are talking about President Trump's executive order on travel and immigration from seven countries. And I wanted to ask before we took questions from our um, our listening audience, and by the way, let me give the number again. It's 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464. You can also email us at legalterms at mpbonline.org. Professors, there have been different ways of handling this executive order at airports across the country. Why is there confusion and is that being addressed? I think that that might be one of the criticisms against this act. Uh, it was rolled out apparently very quickly and without much um, uh, coordination within the federal government. I think a lot of people, both in, in customs and INS and, 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 and law enforcement in general, were surprised when it came out. So there was very little coordination in terms of how to implement it. And that has led to apparently different ways of handling at different um, uh, border entries. And, and as a result of that, I think there's five challenges in federal courts right now. I think court, four courts have ruled that at least the people who were detained at airports have certain rights, access to counsel and to challenges and due process rights. So there has been a, a lack of coordination uh, in implementing um, the, the ban. That, that's going to work itself out. The next couple of days will be a uniform uh, way of, of, of handling this ban at the different courts or different uh, ports. Those visitors from any of the countries, any of the seven countries who arrived via airplane, you know, over the weekend, and they were uh, denied admittance, are they 
were they sent on a plane back to the country they came from? Are they are they being held at the airport somewhere? What do you know what the status is of these visitors? Yeah, I think that has been part of confusion. I mean, the people who are prevented from boarding a plane, that's one thing. But apparently it's like 130, 170 people who, who fell in this uh, no man's land, so to speak, uh, under who had a certain type of visa from the certain type of banned nations. And they, they've been held, uh, but I think they have been, um, based on the federal court rulings in that jurisdiction, have then slowly been released. But some will probably be sent back and some may be uh, released depending upon what, what port of entry they're in. That's part of the confusion. Um, now, I think President Trump made a point that we're talking about 130, 170 people in relation to thousands of people to enter every day. Um, but um, I think on a case-by-case basis, um, those 130, 170 people will be dealt with. Again, some have been released. A five-year-old kid apparently was released, I think, in Seattle or at Los Angeles. So they're going to do uh, review that on a case-by-case basis. But no, there seems to be no uniform um, thought-out policy what would happen uh, to those people who boarded and landed right after the, uh, the, the executive order was, uh, was issued. Here is the elephant in the room question. Is this executive order a ban against Muslims? It's very interesting. If you read the order itself, clearly there's nothing about uh, a ban on, on Muslim. But if you broaden it to somehow, and I think this is why, for example, the acting attorney general who, who uh, refused to uh, implement or defend the ban, uh, she said it's a DOJ policy to, quote, seek justice and stand for what is right, unquote. And she was then fired uh, for taking that stand and replaced with another acting AG. It seems to be people are looking to the presidential campaign statements by uh, Dan Candid, uh, uh Trump in terms of him saying, I'm going to have an all-out ban. Uh, the language itself is free of any such clear ban on Muslims. Um, but if you take in the prior statements from the campaign and the implementation of this executive ban, uh, I can see how people can, can interpret that. There is an interesting uh, lack of pushback uh, for example, from, from Muslim nations. I believe Iran and Iraq have said they're going to take retaliatory actions. However, they're going to do that. We'll have to find out. Uh, complete silence from Saudi Arabia, for example, who coincidentally, if you go back to 9-11, the majority of those uh, terrorists were Saudi Arabian nationals. But a complete silence from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, some of the leading Muslim nations have not. Uh, 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 Why do you think those countries are not included in this ban? Well, that's an interesting question, and that might be an elephant in the room, as you mentioned, uh, that we've been speculating on President Trump's um, uh, motives. Um, and there's been some, some allegations about business contact and things like that. I, I, that's pure speculation. When you read the act itself, it doesn't refer to the seven nations by name. It just refers to a certain act in the Immigration Naturalization Act 217A, subsection 12, which says people from these nations will be banned, and those nations have previously been identified by the Obama uh, administration as nations that are are deserving of special attention. So um, there can be speculation as to why those nations were were selected, but I think President Trump can legitimately say, I did not select them. I went back to nations that were already determined by the INA uh, as needing uh, separate attention. Now, the all-out ban on refugees from Syria, and there's no basis, there's no basis in the law in terms of that. That was something that, uh, as the language states from the executive action, he made a determination that Syrian refugees were detrimental to United States security. And, Karen, irrespective of the, the substance of the law, I mean, really, the, 
the process should have been, this should have been uh, presented to legal counsel. It, it, you know, when, when executive orders are issued they, issued, they usually go through a process of some uh, consideration by legal counsel just to, 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 to hone out some of the problems that might exist. Uh, and so, you know, it would have been better to go to legal counsel, figure out what would have been uh, a legal way to pre- proceed. Then you wouldn't have these four courts having to say, hey, we're going to stay uh, the execution of this act because or that way this really this executive order is really not an act. But um, but that didn't happen. Sally Yates probably wouldn't have been fired. I mean, she was with the Department of Justice for 30 years. That's a lot of different administrations. That's Republican and Democratic administration. She had a really great record. She's fired for now saying what. Had uh, I think had there been consultation with her prior to the issuance of the executive order, maybe some some of the things could have been worked out, and she would have been comfortable with the terms of it. But when it, when you spring it on lawyers, they can't help you very much, and so sometimes that uh, uh, that happens, and that's what happened here. The idea, if I understand correctly, of the executive order is to keep terrorism out of the United States. Is there reason to believe that that will happen as a result of this order? Well, it seems that President Trump seems to believe that uh, there's been a lot of pushback uh, uh, in terms of the seven nations that were selected and, and uh, correlating that with the number of terrorists who committed acts in this nation from those nations. And I think everyone agrees the number there is zero compared, for example, Saudi Arabia and 9-11 is, is where the majority of the uh, 9-11 terrorists came from. So uh, President Trump's point is uh, let's take a 120-day breather. Let's uh, see if we can do some implementation to make the nation more secure. And I think in the long run, it's going uh, it's to work itself out. But the implementation of this uh, act, I mean, the comparison, for example, it's been a long time uh, since we had an acting attorney general or attorney general uh, take a stand against administration and resign or be fired as a result. The last time it happened was the Saturday Night Massacre in Watergate in 1973 when uh, Special Prosecutor Cox uh, refused to fire, or, or or the AG refused to fire him, and the AG, Attorney General and his deputy and Cox all resigned. So it shows there's a fairly dramatic um, uh, uh, opposition to this act uh, when that happens. Second time in our history when an AG, in essence, resigns on principle or is fired on principle. If an American wants to travel to one of the seven countries, can they do that and then wouldn't be able to come back? Or because they're U.S. citizens, were born in the United States, is it clear whether they can travel and then come back? Right. I think that's uh, – and that's not uh, restricted by the act. Uh, so if you're a U.S. citizen and you want to go to one of these seven countries, uh, uh, you're free to do so as an American citizen. You may have trouble by that nation coming in at this point. But as an American, you're free to travel there and you can then come back. Um, there's been some statements by administration uh, officials that when an American citizen comes back from one of those seven countries who's now on a, a, a higher level of alert, so to speak, they may be faced uh, higher scrutiny at the port. But there's nothing bar- barring an American citizen from traveling to one of those seven nations and then reentering into the United States. You have every right to do so. Um, a corollary issue came up with what if you're a dual citizen? What if someone ha- holds, for example, a... Uh, American citizenship and the same citizenship from, um, say, Yemen, um, I think the same thing would apply. As an American citizen, you have a right to go to Yemen and then have a right to come back to America. You may be faced with additional questions at the port of entry, 
Um, but um, there's nothing in this act to prevent an American citizen from traveling to and returning from the, such a nation. Yeah, that's, I'm trying to get an idea. Let's say a, a jet leaves Tehran and lands at LaGuardia in New York, and the jet is full of people. What do they do? I mean, everybody gets off the plane, and through customs, they decide who needs to go back? Or Well, I think at this point, the jet will not land at Tehran. I think uh, they're, they're preventing... Uh, um, those visas from coming. So I, mean, I think that is probably passed. But when that happened, they would then look at the passengers, uh, uh, see who were uh, U.S. citizens. They would be uh, permitted entry. Initially, the ban was, uh, the executive order was uh, uh, brought towards green card holders, permanent residents. I think that was fairly quickly uh, uh, ironed out by the White House saying that we're not barring permanent residents because they have assumed the same legal status as citizens to a large extent. So that will leave them people on the visas, and um, if if someone now boarded a jet from Tehran to the U.S. on, on those visas or banned, they will be not denied entry. And Karen, I think it's interesting that um, England. You know, we uh, the the president talked about our strong partnership with England, and and uh, you know spoke with the Prime Minister of England uh, very publicly. Uh, England is not supporting this ban. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the members of uh, parliament, a very conservative member of parliament, was born in Baghdad. And he was speaking about the fact that um, he has two sons studying at Princeton University. He wasn't sure whether he would be able to travel to the United States to visit them. And so, I mean, this affects a lot of different people, potentially. Uh, and, uh, you know, one thing to keep in context is the more terrorist acts on this country, most of the terrorist acts in this country have been uh, perpetrated by Americans, typically white supremacists. The, uh, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing is still uh, really the, the biggest terrorist act perpetrated by an American citizen. So, you know, the, the issue of terrorism is, is not, you know, uh, one one race, one religion, one one color. I mean, we, we need, really need to think about how we protect ourselves generally, but, you know, this may not be an effective way to do so. Right. We have to take a break, but I do want to ask that when we come back, whether this action is antagonizing uh, the leaders in those very countries that we've been talking about. If you'd like to give us a call, be part of this conversation on In Legal Terms, the number to call is one eight 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 mpb ring no it's 877 what am i saying 877 mpb ring that's 877-672-7464 or email legal terms at mpbonline.org we'll be right back This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. I'm Karen Brown, sitting in for Sharita Brent today. 
Our guests are Dr. Professor Richard Gershon of the uh, Mississippi School University of Mississippi School of Law and Professor Hans Sinha, again from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We are talking about President Trump's executive order regarding travel to the United States from seven specific countries. Before we take our next phone call, um, I wanted to ask about reaction from leaders in those countries and, and why President Trump refers specifically or uses the term radical Islamic terrorist. Why that term? What does that mean? Well, I think that term is not in the act. So that's more of a uh, became a, pol- a political uh, coinage from the campaign where uh, the Trump campaign was uh, criticizing President Obama for not using that. And he used that then. And then the criticism from uh, people who thought that was a wrong term to use was that it might inflame um, uh, Muslims across the world who had no uh, terrorist intent whatsoever. So that's more of a political term that, that he's using during the campaign, uh, but is not part of this act uh, uh, yeah, in terms I, of the I language. Yeah, I misspoke in that regard. Yeah. But is, the, is him referring that way? Is it enraging or, or making angry those leaders in those countries? Well, I think the seven countries, you look at the seven countries, um, uh, Iran, for example, uh, is, is coming back on the market in terms of trading, and they just uh, tentatively exploring a huge deal with Boeing uh, for, I forget, multi-billion dollars for airplanes. And that may be pushed back in terms of that. I mean, Boeing may lose that contract. It could very easily go to Airbus, the European uh, conglomerate, uh, uh, aviation conglomerate instead. So we may lose some uh, opportunities like that. Um, again, Iran and Iraq are the ones who expressed uh, 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 dissatisfaction with this. I think the Iranian parliament is debating some kind of action to deny U.S. servicemen protection. So there could be some pushback there. Uh, I don't think um, uh, President Trump is too worried about Syria. There's really no regime except for uh, the current uh, uh, leader there, and there's um, not much pushback they can do. Sudan and Libya, the same thing, not too much pushback they can do. And I don't think it's too worried about Somalia or Yemen, where there's, in essence, a proxy war led by the Saudi Arabians against uh, Yemen. So in terms of pushback from the seven identified nations, uh, Iran and Iraq may be the ones uh, we as a nation need to worry about. Uh, and again, there's been a surprising void of pushback or outrage from the Muslim world as a whole. Um, so Off- politically, President Trump may not have... Um, um, may not have to worry about that. But our, in the our, long run, there will probably be some damaging uh, uh, relations across the world, including European allies that are outraged by this. All of our phone lines have lit up, so we're going to go to the phones and say good morning to Melissa calling in from Tupelo. What's your question, Melissa? Um, I have a comment. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, what's, what's to keep people that we're trying to keep out from just flying to other countries that we're not banning and flying in from there? Well, they they can, uh, but they would have to have a visa issued by the consulate in the nation of origin. So, for example, say a Syrian flies to, uh, say, Taiwan or, uh, yeah, say Taiwan, because they're coming from a different nation, they don't have a Taiwanese uh, visa. They would need a visa from the Syrian consulate uh, as a Syrian to, to enter. So even though, for example, a Syrian would be entering from another port of departure, they would then be under this executive order uh, stopped at a U.S. border. So, so that that will not happen, and that's um, I mean that that's already uh, in place. Okay, right. thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Staying on the phones, uh, Maggie is calling in from Vicksburg. Good morning, Maggie. Hi. Um, I just wanted to underscore a point that was 
slightly mentioned, but without going, and no one went into the details of by the list that Trump um, included on his ex- executive order did not include Muslim majority countries where his organization does business, including Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates. In financial disclosure forms during his campaign, he listed two companies with dealings in Egypt and eight with business in Saudi Arabia. And in the United Arab Emirates, Trump organization is partnering with a local billionaire to develop two golf courses in Dubai. So I think that's important information to get out there. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely correct. And there, there's um, some criticism um, because of that. People, if you look at the nations, the seven nations that were selected, uh, I think President Trump can say, I selected them because they were previously identified under the INA section that, that I quoted as, as nations that we need to look at uh, closer. So that is his um, explanation for that, presumably. On the other hand, there's no doubt that there is a lot of nations, uh, one of which supplied most of the 9-11 terrorists, exactly. that have been excluded from this list. And, and um, I think it's fair uh, in a healthy democracy to wonder why that may be. Absolutely. Maggie, Absolutely. thank you. Thank you for bringing that to us attention. All right. Uh, staying on the phones, Fred calling in from Pedal. Fred, do you have a question about the Supreme Court? Yes, I do. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. And I had to step away from the radio, so I don't know what y'all had said until the last few minutes. But uh, earlier, there was a caller called in about Roe v. Wade and said it's been a loss since for 40 years or more. And that all the Supreme Court and all these people tried to bring it down and couldn't do it, so it all stand. What what I would like to know, for over 250 years, the citizens of the United States have had the right to own and bear weapons and guns or whatever you want to call them. And all the time they're trying to tear that down. Why is it not written in stone? You can't take the people's guns away from them. And their means of defense. And that's the question I want to know. And, and all these people whining and crying and needing their color books and puppies to pet because Donald Trump won. He won. Leave him alone. You don't see the conservatives tearing up the towns and demonstrating and, and beating up people because Obama won. You heard people complaining, but you didn't see no demonstration and rioting in the streets like these ignorant left-wingers are. And what I want you to do is, is make the remark about what I said about Roe v. Wade being, the caller said, 40 years and can't change it. What about 250 years of gun rights in the, for the people? Make a statement about that that's fair. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Well, I think um, I mean there, there's a, a valid pop points there, but in terms of gun rights and, and the current court and expectation of some of the possible people named to the court. I think there's one just the judge from um, uh, uh, Denver who apparently is fairly uh, strong in gun rights. I, I don't think we're going towards um, taking away or limiting the Second Amendment. I think a trend at this point is the other way to expanding it. There's some litigation going back and forth. There's uh, I mean, one from, from D.C., there's a Chicago, there's one in L.A. pending right now. 
brought by the police union about the California limitations on on, uh, on, on magazine clips more than 10 bullets. But all those had to percolate through and get up to the Supreme Court. But in terms of limiting the Second Amendment in comparison to Roe versus Wade, I think the trend seems to be the other way. I mean, I think it's been a push now by the NRA, and it's going to, at some point through this Congress, uh, possibly a nationwide concealed carry permit. I mean, there's things percolating, but are percolating, I think, towards uh, expanding the Second Amendment uh, interpretation as opposed to uh, against it. And, you know, if I can say, my, my wife works for a magazine called Garden and Gun. So, I, you know, I, I think um, the uh, the fact is that the the reason the Supreme Court keeps hearing gun cases is because, unlike a, a woman's body and, and the way a baby is born, that's pretty static. That doesn't really change very much. But the types of guns that are available and how they're available can change. And those are really the issues that are being uh, litigated. So, for example, you know, and 250 years ago, there were no assault weapons per se. There weren't, you know, automatic weapons. There weren't, uh, you know, uh, you know, guns that are really more for military use. Isn't so ammunition also being litigated? Absolutely. So, they're, you know, they're different. I think the, the, the real question is, what, you know, where, where is that line? Uh, and, and, and certainly I, I think at this point it's a settled fact that, you know, people can have their, their guns. The question is, what does that mean? What, you know, and that's really why the Supreme Court still hears those cases because the definition of what that means and to, to the extent the states can uh, regulate guns, where can they regulate guns? At schools, at, at, you know, at, at, at other places that, uh, uh, we want to limit uh, the use of guns. So, you know, those are the issues. Whereas, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade really deals with a woman's right to, to consult with her doctor about her body. I really mentioned an interesting point of ammunition. So the caller's concern is, is the Second Amendment, and I think the Second Amendment is going to be fairly strongly protected by the current court and the future court. But then, um, for example, California passed a, a law, I think it goes into effect a year from now, where uh, you had to register in order to buy ammunition, a certain amount of ammunition. And, and I think the caller may be concerned by their, their ancillary attacks, not necessarily on the Second Amendment and rights, but then on the, the uh, for example, the ammunition. So it's got a backhanded attack on that. So in that sense, there may be litigation, but it's all going to work up into Supreme Court eventually. Uh, I'm sure the California new ban will eventually reach the Supreme Court, and depending on the composition of the court, that it may be struck down or may be upheld. But that's a sign of a working democracy. Uh, we are made up of 50 different states and jurisdictions, and everyone's going to have a little say in how to interpret it. But in terms of fundamental rights, a Second Amendment right, Supreme Court has been pretty strong recently to to uphold uh, what's perceived as the the right uh, to to bear arms. We're going to take our last break of the show. Janie, I know you're holding on. Please be patient. We're going to get to your phone call as soon as we come back. If you'd like to call and you just have a few minutes to do so, pick up the phone and call 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. We'll be right back. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And 
And we're back on in, in Legal Terms. I'm Karen Brown in for Sharita Brent here with Professor Richard Gershon and Professor Hans Sinha talking about Donald Trump, President Trump's executive order regarding um, immigration, travel, visas, all that from seven countries. And Janie, we're going to go right to you. And I appreciate your patience and waiting on the phone. You're calling in from Tupelo with a comment. Is that right? Yes, I have a comment on the uh, order about the uh, <laughs> the so-called terrorists. Uh, he has just, Trump has just handed ISIS a gift on a silver platter. They will be able to use this to recruit even more terrorists. It's just appalling. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, in recruiting in, in, in regard to what? Because, because by treating these people who for the most part, I would say, have been suffering from terrorism. Uh, he is uh, taken away all the trust they had in us, and I would imagine made some people very angry. And they feel they're being unfairly treated, and it's perfectly uh, possible that they would just say, okay, we've, we've just uh, gotten a bad deal, and so now we're going to go to the other side. Professors, you want to comment on that? Well, I think that's one of the, the most compelling criticism. Maybe taking that argument a little further, um, people have been working with, with our, our, our troops on the ground, uh, specifically as interpreters and aiding the U.S. troops in, in activities at great risk to their personal uh, safety and families, and who are then uh, um, given and are promised visas to come to this country under certain classifications, specifically now in, in Iraq. Uh, and then to tell those people, uh, sorry, we changed our mind. Uh, on a personal level, you know, that seems somewhat unfair to the person who happens to understand Trump's position, keeping the nation uh, safe is his point. But going forward, uh, I'm sure it's going to be harder for our troops to recruit uh, locals to work for our troops in combat uh, situations under the, the promise of that we will then protect you and bring your family to the U.S. So I think... The caller has a point then in, in general, but it's also specifically in, in a tactical situation and may make it much more difficult for our troops to do a job uh, abroad in those nations. Janie, thank you so much for your phone call. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now we're going to Skrill, and I don't know where that is. Leo is calling in. Leo, where is Skrill? Scuba. Oh, Scuba. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, go ahead with your question. I have two questions. I'm going to hang up and listen. One... Mr. Emmett Till and the bride woman, what is going to be did about this since she lied and that man lost his life? And number two is since she's kin to the bride, is is it they just going to throw it on the road? And that's number one. Number two, the flag. What's so honorable about the flag that you uh made a race of people just bow down to you and then you want to honor it. You know, I don't I don't I don't get that. And and you know, heritage. Why would you want to carry a heritage that that uh got a people that you you know, you didn't treat them right. I, I don't get that. Why okay. would you want to be proud of something like that? All right, Leo. Okay, Leo. The first question he's referring to I believe is a book that claims that um the woman who testified that Emmett, Emmett Till came on to her or whatever he did has recanted later in 2008. This writer says that she told him that she made that up. 
Ren is very interesting. So Emmett Till case, you know, was tried, and and uh, this is Mrs. Roy Bryant, the wife of of one or two defendants who were acquitted by the jury, and then after that went out and made a look interview uh, where they admitted to having committed a crime. Um, Mrs. Bryant testified at the trial in, in Sumner in uh, 1956, I believe it was. Um, and she had very compelling testimony about what happened in the store. And it became almost a sexualized version where Emmett Till supposedly grabbed her uh, one hand around her back and, and, and much more than just touching her hand, so to speak. However, that testimony was done outside the presence of the jury. So in terms of the verdict, that testimony was not heard by the jury. That eventually then uh, uh, came back with a not guilty. The world heard that testimony, however, and it was reported across the world. So that became the version in terms of what happened at the store um, in, in Money, Mississippi. Um, now, she um, supposedly then in 2008 came out and said to this author, I think from Duke, that uh, that version was incorrect. I think most people already believed with all the other evidence, eyewitnesses who were with them at, at Till at the time at the store in Money that that did not happen as she described it. But again, um, she um, uh, her testimony was outside the press of the jury because the judge determined that what happened at the store was not per se relevant to whether or not the two defendants had committed a kidnapping and a crime, meaning the defense was trying to say there was a justification for them having, Emmett Till having done something to Mrs. Bryant. The judge said, well, no, that doesn't make sense. I'll let you put it on the record outside of President's jury, but it's not part of the jury verdict. I know we can spend a whole show on the flag, on the state flag, but if briefly, if one of you could address that topic, because we do have another phone call waiting before the show ends. Well, you know, I think we've talked about it a little bit on the show before. It seems like to me that there's such division about the current flag. Uh, it, It was a flag that really was initiated uh, to support segregation uh, there's a, you know, so I, I, you know, I think probably it would be in the best business interest of the, of the state as well as its best interest for uh, uniting its people to, to move on from it and have a different flag. But that's my opinion. All right. Moving on to Rick, who's calling in from I'm not sure where, Rick, but you have a comment on the executive order. Yes, I'd like to echo what the lady from Tupelo was saying. I mean, I think it's just about as obtuse a reaction to dealing with. You know, terrorism across the world, such as it is, just uh, I think it unites and and probably, uh, you know, it. I think Obama was very sophisticated in the way he dealt with that because he tried to isolate the terrorists away from the rest of the Muslim world by not indicting the whole Muslim world, and it's just all been washed away in one fell swoop. And I'm really concerned about how. <laughs> conservatives are so undisciplined about worried and worrying about the rule of law and how critical that is in the United States. And Trump seems not to be bound by that. And just wanted to, to, you know, make my opinion known. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. One thing that we haven't talked a whole lot about, I'm wondering about the Syrian refugees, uh, a truly horrific situation. Are the is Syria and those refugees being lumped? I mean, I know they're included in these seven countries, but is that also terrorism-related? Because we're talking about sanctuary cities here. Donald Trump has, a, has addressed that. Yeah, I think that, that might be one of the most surprising things when you actually read executive order. I mean, Syria is mentioned as one of the nations, seven nations, where it's going to be a visa uh, suspension, meaning someone who legitimately went through an application to get a visa and then got a visa. 
But there's an additional thing, and this is what struck, uh, you know, strikes, uh, stands out when you read executive order. In addition, there's a section there that says that it, President has made a determination that is in the interest of the United, Nations, United States security to immediately ban all refugees from Syria. So Syria seems to have been singled out. They're one of the seven nations for visa suspensions, immediate visa suspensions. In addition, um, they are the only nation where refugees are immediately banned as well. Um, so yeah, for, for whatever reasons, um, President Trump made a determination that Syrian refugees are not to be allowed in. Um, and there's no explanation in executive order why, except for saying that he made a determination that's in the interest of United States security. With just two minutes left, actually a little less than two minutes, can each of you give us some parting thoughts about what you think will come of this executive order, whether it will stay in place for, it's supposed to be for 90 days, will it stay in place for the full 90 days? Is it going to be litigated? Dr. Gershon, will you start? Well, I, I want to say, maybe I'll let Hans address the specifics okay. of that, but I just think, you know, if executive orders are, are issued in the future, I hope this administration has learned that you need to bounce ideas off of people that you trust within the administration and with legal counsel, which didn't happen. So I'm a, I'm a big process person. You know, I think, I think the one thing that uh, protects our, our democracy is to follow the right process, and I don't think that really occurred in this situation. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think the seriousness of this order is, is indicated by the fact that we had a second Saturday Night Massacre, so to speak, when the acting attorney general resigned on principle. So I think that speaks uh, volumes in terms of both uh, maybe the subject and the content and especially um, how the act was rolled out. In the long run, though, the judiciary, I mean, it's going to be challenging the court in various uh, different aspects. Judiciary as a whole gives great deference to the president in terms of national security and especially border control. So... Um, in the long run, there may be some tweaking of this, and in frankly, in the short run, on 20 days, it may be uh, 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 dialed in its own accord, so to speak, from the language that's written in there. But in terms of court challenges, I think they're working themselves out very quickly in terms of an overreach of implementation of the act, in terms of overturning the act as a whole. Um, I will see that to be unlikely, especially with the new attorney general coming in. Well, I thank you both for all of your great thoughts today. Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law, Professor Han Sinha, clinical professor of law and director of the Clinical Externship Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Thank you both so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to In Legal Terms today. Uh, Southern Remedy is up next, so keep listening to MPV Think Radio.